Welcome, everyone, to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for uh, joining me on another episode across the podcast airwaves. Legendary. That's all I've got to say. My next guest is the legendary Bronco Billy, Jeff Browning. And uh, I am very thankful that uh, he agreed to jump on the podcast today. Uh, doesn't do a lot of shows and uh, feel very blessed. So anybody who follows trail running has been in trail running for a while, um, knows the ultra world, knows that uh, Jeff Browning is probably one of the most decorated trail runners ever. Uh, he's got 200 ultra marathons under his belt, 40 wins, 28 of them are at hundred mile plus second in the world for uh, ultra wins ranks like ranks seven times in the ultra running uh, ultra run of the year uh, has the FKT for the rim to rim to rim trail. I could go on and on and on uh, and it wouldn't do it justice. Um, so I appreciate Jeff coming on and talking about this. This is going to be a really fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to the trail life, Jeff Browning, Mr. Bronco Billy. Well, help me turn the turn in. Well, help me get it right. I don't want to hurt nobody. Well, um, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. Really, I appreciate it. I know you don't do a lot of these, so thank you. I was doing some of the research and I was going through some of your resume, and I'm I'm, I I think if I was to label off all of your all of your entire resume, I think I'd be here for the entire hour. I'm alone, so. So correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to make sure I got this right. 200 ultra marathons, uh, over 200 ultra marathons, 40 wins. Is it, Are you still second in the world for most wins too? Yeah, most 100 mile wins. Most 100, 100 mile wins. Yeah, 100 plus mile wins. Wow. We now have to put 100 plus on it because of the 200 distance. So let's talk about that just for a second. As we go, I'm, I am currently rolling here right now, but I was talking to Isabella, uh, just a second ago, or um, Isabel Janovic, everybody knows Ultra Izzy B um, as you're a listener on the podcast. I was talking to her and we were just kind of shooting the shit and she made, made it known to me that that Moab 240 was your first 200 plus race. It was. I'm shocked by that. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Out of everything you've done, that, that was, uh, you, you hadn't done a, two, a 200 plus race before. No, I was supposed to during 2021. I was signed up for Bigfoot and actually um, had everything packed and gear ready and was on my way to Washington and uh, my entire family got COVID. Um, So we turned around and drove home. (laughs) So, so it had to be postponed until 2022 after that situation. So we, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to do it. I've been wanting to do it for years and I coached a lot of people to it and I coached Mike McKnight. Anyway, that, wasn't in the car. It wasn't in the cards. So I, I turned around, drove home and then waited and bided my time until Moab. What was like being that it was your first 200, like what was, what was kind of some of the difference you've seen from the 200 to all of your 100 um, races? Like what's your, what's your, what's your prep going into something like that? Because obviously the the changes for the multi-day racing and, and sleep and nutrition and stuff. So what's your prep going into something that's a little bit longer than what you're used to? Well, um, 
I think the 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 running prep is similar. There's really besides maybe some you know bigger back to back days if you have the time or more adventure type uh like where you maybe do a three-day block or a two-day block of bigger adventure running where you might be doing almost like a fast pack. Some of my middle, the back of the packers that I coach will do a little more fast packing type work and, and bigger days, you know, where we might do a training camp weekend, how, or maybe run double, you know, and run in the night, like run morning, run night, run another day. Um, For me personally, it was mainly just training with the water that you got to carry you know, cause so having a heavier pack, you know, training with three or four liters at a time on long runs, just, you know, instead of like norm, normally I'd, um, you know, filter water or have a water stash or something for longer runs. Um, the San Francisco peaks are dry. So there's really not a lot of, well, we have more water this year because we had a huge snow year, but yeah. normally they're dry as a bone. So there's no filtering anywhere. So you have, we, we do, a, I personally do a water cache during the season um, somewhere so I can like refill on long runs and then go replace that cash every once in a while. Um, and the, you know, training for a 200, I just carried the water from the start, just getting used to, you know, the full kit on what was required gear, uh, all that kind of stuff, you know, hiking a little more on the climbs, you know, than I normally would in a hundred, a little more hiking. Mm-hmm. That was probably the only difference in training, I guess. Not that, not that different. I think the biggest thing that's harder about the 200 distance is the sleep deprivation. Yeah. Um, being out multiple nights, sleep strategy, feet, taking care of your feet, stuff like that. Yeah. What, so I, I, I love asking this question cause I I'm following like races like Moab and Bigfoot, uh, Bigfoot and stuff. Like what is your, Cause you can't train for sleep deprivation. That's the, that's the craziest thing about it. So no, you are you, are you more of the sleep more during, during your aid stations or sleep less during that and try and just take small little naps along the trail? Like what's your, my what strategy, your strategy in two, at the two forty. Well, my strategy was, my strategy is different now than it was even at Moab. Um, just based on experience and coaching, um, I'm finding that in the least in the elite field where, you know, the people up front racing these trying to race 200s, um, I think they that you do better. Uh, I think you do better by sleeping early before the race unfolds. So yeah. racing, sleeping more like night one, um, maybe maybe afternoon two or evening two, and then trying to finish without sleeping after that. I, I had a sleep strategy of skipping the first night at Moab. And I ended up taking like a five, maybe three, five minute dirt naps from like 5 a.m. the second day till I slept in the evening at like 7 p.m. the second day too. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a planned sleep at 160, whatever, 167 or whatever, uh, road 46 crossing. That was my first planned sleep and everything else was dirt naps. And it was like three, five minute dirt naps. But in hindsight, I was struggling on day two and because I needed to sleep. And I think if I would have slept on night one, I think I would have been way more fresh for day two. Yeah. And I would have run better on day two and probably faster. I mean, that's my own theory. And just based on experience coaching 
you know, Mike McKnight, I just started coaching um, Sarah Ostazuski, who won the women's race at Cocodona 250. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she and I, she lives here locally. And so we've had coffee several times. We, instead of doing, you know, remote phone calls, like I do with normally my coaching clients, she's local. So we sit down for coffee every three weeks. Um, and we did a lot, we did a download after, after Moab. And she did the same thing, very similar. Mike was forced into sleeping just because he was having a rough first day. Yeah. And she slept because it's her third time there. And she felt like she needed that sleep. So she had evolved her race plan over three years of fine tuning to where she slept more night one night and, and day two, and then didn't sleep because then the race unfolds and you don't want to sleep. Right. But if you've, yeah. if you've gone on fumes and then just taken like one nap, then you're like, you're running, you just don't run well when you're tired. And and that really hit home to me in at Moab. A good buddy of mine um was pacing me up and over the LaSalle's. So night two. And if I took a five-minute nap and I was fresh again, um, I was dropping him on climbs, but he was dropping me if I was tired. Yeah. So so it just shows you like how slow you don't even know you're going that slow, but you, how slow your pace like creeps when you're fatigued and you just can't keep your eyes open and you have fo trouble focusing on the trail. I think that's a good lesson for people, you know, and then middle of the back of the pack um, people that I coach, we coach it differently than the front of the pack because the front of the pack is trying to win. So you're trying to sleep the least amount it possible, but still be functioning. Whereas the middle of the back of the pack, we're trying, well, they're trying to function too, but, <laughs> but we're trying to get like a rim cycle, like, yeah. you know, hour and a half, you know, you get a rim cycle in about 90 minutes. And so we, tr we're trying to get a rim cycle, you know, at, at least by day, you know, maybe a short nap night one, but then rim cycle night two, night three, and maybe even a rim cycle every 12 hours if they can afford it with their pace, depending on their pace. You know, some are pushing cutoffs and they can't. And some, if they have the bandwidth, I recommend, a, you know, 90 minutes every 12 hours and yeah. they'll function way better for 12 hours and pay, their pace will be better and they'll make good decisions and they won't be late. You know, they won't. The problem with sleep deprivation is you just, it's like you're drunk. And so you make, you make bad decisions. You don't like hydrate as much. You don't take your electrolytes. You don't eat as much because you're kind of in la la land and you can't even remember how you're not even keeping track how much you're drinking when you should be, you know, and all kinds of stuff that, ha that kind of a trickle down effect. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to uh, Sarah couple of weeks ago, right, right after Cocodona. And she was kind of explaining that whole entire thing too, where it took a, took a little bit longer naps, like earlier on. And then once she got into that, you know, last 50 miles race or whatever mode. it was. Yeah, exactly. Race mode kicked in and she, and she was like, okay, I'm just going to go with it. You know? So it's interesting to hear. That's actually the most detailed conversation that I've had about sleep deprivation and, and sleeping with it. So thank you for a little bit yeah. further breakdown of it. <laughs> well, I can't help it. I coach it. So like no, we, I mean, it's, we get in the weeds a little bit, but. But it's cool though. Like I, I talked to a lot of like, like you were saying, like middle of the Packers or back of the Packers that are doing their first, first 200 or whatever it is. And it's, that's always the thing that, that everybody struggles with the most, most part is how do you manage that? Cause you can't go out and, and train that at all. And so you're trying to factor that in. When do I sleep? How long do I sleep? Where is it factoring? Like do, when, 
when do I know I need to sleep more really is what it came down to. And, and it's, so it's kind of cool to hear that like a little bit further breakdown of where, like where you need to get that rim taken into. So. Yeah. And part of that's, you know, I, I, I have, have, have friends that are pushing the envelope, you know, on on multi-day stuff, you know, Mikey Sklar, you don't know if you know who that is, but Mikey does a lot of stuff. Um, Him and his partner, Vaughn Fawn, I've known Vaughn since we both got into ultras like a year apart in, in the Northwest. So I think she started her first ultra in 02 and, or maybe 99 or 2000, we were right around the same time. And I was 01. So we were at the same races for years and years. And, and back when we were racing more regionally and then, and there weren't as many races out there. And, and then Mikey and her kind of um, connected at some point. And um, he's really, I used to coach him and, and he's really a geek about like getting, you know, data and like what, what the body, what the body needs and what it can get, get away with. Mm-hmm. And that's one of his tricks is a, a, a rim cycle when he's doing a five day or something. It's a, it's a rim cycle every 12 hours. And he doesn't even set an alarm because, you know, when you go to sleep, you kind of get restless at about 90 minutes and you kind of wake up for yeah. a second, roll over when you're in normal bed and sleep, you kind of sleep for 90 minutes and kind of get restless. And then you go back to sleep. That was the end of rim cycle one. So if you know that you just get up, that's what he does. He lets his body have a full rim cycle and he he knows when he gets restless because he knows if he goes back to sleep, he's going to, it's going to be a deeper sleep and he's going to have more trouble getting up if he goes into another cycle. So like you get up on the first one and then get going. Yeah. So that, I mean, if anybody's listening in on that and wants to definitely listen into some of that um, information, because I think that's hugely important. You know, I, as we get into this, uh, Jeff, I, I, there's a lot of people that listen in that, you know, maybe have lived under a rock and haven't heard of who you are and, and what you've done in the sport. So everybody really knows you by Bronco Billy. Yeah. So I Kind of, uh, give me, give me where did Bronco Billy come from? Let's, let's start with that first and foremost, because everybody's going to be like Jeff Browning, Bronco Billy. What's, what's the difference here? So where, where did the name come from? Um, I, when I got into the sport early in like, oh, oh, two, oh, three, um, I have a really good buddy in Bend, Oregon. I was living in Bend, Oregon at the time. And, um, but my friend, Jason Moyer, who at the time was the ultra runner in, in bend and, um, him and, um, he was, a, he's a little younger than I am. I think a couple of years younger than I am. And, and he, we had a couple of buddies that were older and they were kind of mint, they were mentors and they were friends with him. And we all kind of took, they took me under their wing and let me run with them and teach me where all the routes were in central Oregon. And, you know, um, the, the hard route at Smith rock and how to go, you know, how to go up volcanoes and all kinds of stuff. And, um, when Jason and I kind of, um, I had one kid in the house, newborn, um, starting in 02 and he and I kind of connected for adventures, like long runs. And we went to the gorge a few, like once, and we went to Squaw peak 50 way back and ran that together. And then I paced him at Wasatch, um, in 2003. And so there, we, we had, we had this joke where I, I had been in this climbing circle in Bend, Oregon, or in, uh, Denver in the late nineties. And I had a really good friend, um, uh, from Wyoming who used to yell giddy up all the time. 
And we, we and, and I, you know, I grew up on a farm in Missouri. So like I, I immediately attached to that phrase and I would use it all the time. And well, and the two of us would use it all the time. Like our little group used it all the time where we'd be like, <laughs> you know, yelling giddy up. If someone was like on a route, on a sport route on the side of a, you know, mount on the side of a cliff and be like, you got to make the move, giddy up, you know? <laughs> and so we, you know, if someone stuck something, we'd be like, giddy up, you know? And so that I was already in the habit of saying that. And I was joke, I jokingly say it a lot when we were doing adventures and he started just calling me Bronco Billy because I grew up on a farm and all this other stuff. And it was, it was kind of like, you know, a, a good, like between friends joke. And he claimed to be from a direct descendant of Vikings and from the berserker tribe. He said he had, he had direct lineage lineage to the berserker <laughs> okay. tribe or something. And so I would call him berserker and he <laughs> called me Bronco Billy. And then um, when I was looking for back when, before social media, there was blogs, if you'll remember blogs yeah. and everyone yep. read blogs about ultra running. And, and I started doing a blog. I was a graphic designer at the time and um, branding person. And like, I, I was looking for jeffbrowning.com or something, you know, where I could set up a blog and like for, to share what I was doing with my family in the Midwest, um, you know, photos and stories. And more, yeah. more for me too, I was doing race reports on all my races. So that way, if I went back to the race, I could go back and read my report, you know, like when I was going to run the race again, for example, yep. I did that to big, Bighorn several times in the mid two thousands. And he, so anyway, I, I got, I couldn't find Bronco. Billy wasn't available. Jeff Browning wasn't available, you know, URLs. So I got go Bronco Billy.com. And because I was like, well, it's an action word. I was going to do run Bronco Billy, but then what if I get hurt and I can only go back to mountain biking, you know, or something like that. <laughs> So I was thinking I need an action word. So that's where Go Bronco Billy came from. And then I was a graphic designer and in tech. And so when social media came around, I was kind of an early adopter hmm. and I grabbed all those handles. And but the blog got kind of popular. And then people started like like kind of key people in the ultra running community at the time. Rock Horton, who, who's kind of a he's not really in the sport anymore, but um he, you know, 10 time hard rock finisher worked, um, Kroger's canteen at hard rock, 110 years or nine years in a row, you know, to get back after he finished 10 times, he like just, he and I had met at Bighorn one year and we both found out we played guitar and, you know, he and I camped next to each other. And, and so he started calling me Bronco and then Chrissy Mail started calling me Bronco at the time. She was like the team, team manager at the Montreal Patagonia team that I was on. And so there was like this whole circle of like kind of Joe Grant started calling me Bronco and a whole bunch of different people in the sport at the time, this was in the two thousands, mid two thousands. And then everyone started calling me Bronco. It just kind of stuck because they were calling me Bronco. And then, you know, you just hear people, you know, on during a race, go Bronco, you know, and <laughs> it just kind of took on a, a, a you know, kind of a, a, it became its own life form. Really. It's, it did. It became it. <laughs> And I used to jokingly, like when I wrote race reports, I was trying to make them humorous and I would act like Bronco Billy was like my alter ego. And, yeah. you know, he wanted out, of, he wanted out of the stable, but he's a stallion. Don't let him out yet. Like hold back, hold back for the first half of the hundred. Then you can let him out because he likes to race, you know? So it was a lot of visualization using Bronco Billy as an alter ego. So that's kind of how it, <laughs> and I naturally branded it because I worked in graphic design and branding and marketing. Yeah. And that was just, you know, that was second nature to me. 
to like just use it. And it just kind of took on its own life. So when you're, when you're at an event, do you hear more, do you hear more of the Bronco Billy side of things now? Or do you hear, do you hear your full like regular name? Both. It's like 50, 50. I still people, <laughs> a lot of people call me Bronco or people will call me Billy um, sometimes, or they'll just stop you on, you know, running the Grand Canyon and they'll be like, are you Bronco Billy? And <laughs> yeah. Then I'll introduce myself as Jeff. <laughs> when did uh so you said you started getting into trail running back in early 2000s yeah. like what was what got you into trail running were you a runner prior prior to that well i well, i always ran casually like i had i had played four sports a year in the 80s in in missouri you know football baseball basketball mm-hmm. track and field and i was good i was a good middle distance runner 800 mile um, I focused on the 800 um, when I was in high school and um, and one conference in the 800 my senior year of high school. Um, so I did have some running talent, I guess, um, or potential, but I was so focused on football. I almost went, you know, to D3 scholarship, had offers to D3 and D2 schools, but I was pretty small. You know, I'm like 5'8", 140 pounds. And at the time, I was probably 5'8", 135 and so I was just like, I, you know, I didn't really want to play football at a small school. I wanted to go to a bigger school. I went to the University of Missouri, um, got into, was an early adopter of mountain biking. I had a really good buddy who play, I played football with. We would both gone to the same high school. We both went to the same college. We ended up hanging out a lot. Um, we, we rushed the same fraternity, you know, all kinds of stuff. This is back, you know, 90, 91. And we both got into, he got it. He got his first mountain bike in like 90 through 92. And then in spring of 93, I got my first mountain bike and, um, we started mountain biking horse trails. You know, we all grew up farm boys and, yep. you know, um, it was an, I grew up riding three wheelers and motorcycles. And so like, it was a natural kind of progression to get on a, you know, a mount, mountain bike and, and it was all hardtail, all fully like rigid yeah. bikes, you know, riding <laughs> single track with toe clips. So the little, you slide your feet into them. Little so we baskets were, or whatever they call them. The yeah. baskets. We were riding those in like 93, 94 on, on horse trails in the Ozarks and uh, in state parks and all kinds of stuff. There was no restrictions back then, right? That was before like all the use cases came to a head, you know, because it was at that point, you know, 93, I think production mountain bikes had only been in North America for seven years or something. Right. It was like 86, I think was the first production mountain bike that came to the U S and so we were super early adopters and we got super hardcore into it. I mean, I lived on my mountain bike, like we rode five days a week, you know, and, and I rode to class, you know, I, I, I had early like, um, clipless pedals, like SPD pedals, like back when they were elastomers. And so I just was, I, I really got into it. You know, I was the, I was one of those guys that was riding around campus, like jumping off stairs and trying to hop up on things and okay. doing trials type stuff and hopping up on benches with your mountain bike, you know, <laughs> trying to impress people, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it, that was like kind of my early, like I really got into mountain biking, but I still ran. I had a dog, you know, I had, I got a dog in college. We just, you know, I take the dog out running like three days, three or four days a week. So I always ran a little bit, but it was like 20, 30 minutes, you know, just go out jog and like, listen to, you know, back when there was like, 
the giant cassette headphones, you know, and um, and you're carrying this giant box in your hand. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't even put it on your belt and pull your pants down. It was so heavy. You had to run, hold it like a football. It was the Sony Walkman or whatever, the yellow one. It was supposed to be waterproof or something. It was gigantic. But it was that was like the early days. And then I got in, when I, we moved to Denver in the late 90s. I started trail running a little bit. Not a ton, just kind of with my dog and kind of getting out you know, a little bit here and there, but still was mainly just saw myself as a mountain biker. My wife and I started climbing. And when we moved to Denver, we joined a gym, learned to climb, got a whole circle of climbers. And I really got into sport climbing and bouldering and, and then summoning some, some 14ers. And then when I moved to bend is when I really got into running. I, I met a buddy of mine, Rod Bean, and he, he, uh, who's still an ultra runner. And he, he and I got into, he, he's the one that kind of introduced me to that Western States 100 existed. Um, I was still really focused on mountain biking and we started trail running together and he took me on my first long run. It was a disaster. I think I carried one water bottle and it was a hot summer day. And, you know, I, I totally got, I bonked, I got dehydrated, but we really started geeking out on ultras and that's how I got kind of introduced to ultra marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, and trail running, like, like training trail running, like where you're, Hey, I'm going to go run four days a week, like intentionally, not just like, Hey, I got to grab my dog and keep him from chewing up the cushions or something, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into it was just kind of naturally it evolved there. And, and that was really, for me, that was like the culmination of all the sports I did mountain biking, yeah. climbing and summiting things and hiking and back. I was backpacking too. And I really just got into like, I like the the idea of light and fast and not having to deal with like, Hey, I'm going to break a chain or a flat tire or something like that. I just, you could go almost as fast as you could on a mountain bike, but you could go more places because you could go into wilderness areas and you could go summit mountains and volcanoes that they wouldn't allow mountain bikes to go to. So that was a, that was what really attracted me to the sport initially. I mean, it's, it's an easy, I guess it's an easier transition when you're a mountain biker going into trail running. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. if you were, if you were telling me you were a road cyclist that jumped into trail running, it'd be a little bit, a little bit of an awkward, you know, transition for you, but seeing that you were, you kind of knew what the trails look like, you know, in certain areas and stuff like that, you kind of had that, I guess what the landscape would look like, you know, from a runner perspective, and it, it makes it for an easy transition into it. What was your first, what was your first race then? Um, Hag Lake 50 K in, uh, in the coastal range of Oregon. So like Southwest of Portland, it's a muddy 50 K in February. So in during in the middle of the rainy season in the <laughs> Northwest, which was back then there was something called the Oregon ultra series. And there were like, I don't know, seven or eight races. Um, and you, it, you, you got points for everyone you completed and how you placed. And then there was like an award at the end of the season. So a lot of us did those, that series, like we would do a ton of races because that back then, you know, I was younger. I couldn't travel as much. It, I mean, cost wise for me. So we just did regional stuff, Oregon, Washington, Northern California. We were mainly racing in those three States. What, uh, taking a look back at where you're, where you're at now versus that first, uh, 50k you did. What, what would you go back and tell yourself? I guess the start line is like, do you have? Would you have to give yourself any any uh, tips on on that first race? Well, learn how to hydrate, eat like the proper amounts. I back then we were eating too much per hour. Yeah. You know, I was consuming too many calories per hour, and there's a lot of GI stress moments back then. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't hadn't figured out how to 
you know, hydrate electrolyte balance, that kind of stuff. You know, we have a lot, we just have so much more data now and we have so much more after 20 some years in the sport, we have way more, way more knowledge of like the system, you know, like hundred percent. Yeah. how much, how much sodium per liter you should have. And you know, how many calories per hour and your drink rate per hour, depending on temperatures, right? Like, because you've done tests on a scale, you know, and all kinds in different temperatures, like, so charted it, you know, we, we're way more like data driven now and more in, you know, we, we understand the sport a little better than we did back then. It was just kind of back then. It was just like, you know, probably the best advice someone gave me was like, buy succeed caps and take S caps every 30 to 45 minutes with your water, you know, that, that was probably the best advice back then. And it was, it was still pretty accurate today. You know, if you look at people's, how much their sodium they dump per liter of sweat, you know, somewhere around 900 milligrams is the average. So, you know, a couple succeed caps an hour, are probably a pretty good idea. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting to see how, like, well, as, as you're saying, like technology has kind of helped us along the way. And it's, you know, when you're a, trail runner back in the early 2000s or even like in the 80s and 90s, I would have loved to have been around some of those early races, I guess, because just to see what some of the runners were getting into and how the races were kind of put together. Cause it's, it's amazing. All the, like you said, the data that goes into, okay, I'm going to get ready for a hundred mile race. What do I, what do I need? And everything's right there at your fingertips. Like it's quite interesting, but what, um, over the years, I mean, now we're, you're, let's see, 23 and then 07. So you're 16, 17 years into trail running at this point. Actually 23, now 23 years. 23 years. So, so 2001 was my first. Filter. Okay. So yeah, 20, so 23 years. 23 seasons. You've, you've run all over the world. Yeah. What are, what are some of the, I guess, what's one of the few experiences that you that you've seen through, throughout your career, whether it's just going out and, and running a, a a regular trail as, as a non-race or even being at a, a race in general, like, is there anything that really pops out? Like, you know, top, you know, top experience or top three experiences that you've seen in, in the sport itself. I really enjoyed Japan when I ran Mount Fuji and I was there 10 days and I really enjoyed the, just the Japanese people and how respectful and, and humble they are. I like that culture is really, was really, you know, refreshing, I guess. And then um, I loved, I spent, uh, you know, 10 days in New Zealand um, before Tarawara in 2018 and, and um, tooling around the South Island and um, really, in, you know, that was, uh, they've got some beautiful mountains on the South Island. And um, so that kind of sticks out. Patagonia and Chile um, really sticks out. I've been there twice. I've raced a race there. And then I was there for a project for Patagonia back in um 2014 and uh just being there and like running some of those giant mountains yeah. um and was being that the, in that landscape's pretty cool was that the video that i saw on your website from the patagonia trip yeah yeah it would have been like i think uh mile for mile or whatever that yeah, documentary yeah that was, was a really cool yeah really cool uh, it was a cool experience um I really enjoyed that trip. Um, it was fun. You know, it was like, a, it's one of the, I mean, even though we were doing a film project, it was very casual. It was like a, you know, it was like going to a run, you know, like just going on like with a bunch of friends to go train somewhere in a different country, you know, or yeah. something. So that was really fun, you know? And then I went back like about four or five months later in, in spring of 2015 and raced 
Ultra Fjord, the inaugural Ultra Fjord 100, or it's a 108 miler, you know, in the in the fjords and south of Torres del Paine. And that was probably one of the most challenging races I've ever been in. And then um, those are probably the ones that, you know, probably stick out. I mean, I love going to France and, you know, and Chamonix and going to UTMB. I've been there twice. So that's that's always a special place, too. But I mean, I have to say we have some pretty darn good stuff in the in the in the West. You know, yeah. in the U.S. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, the um, it's hard to tra- it's hard. You know, after I've done all that, you realize <laughs> like, wow, we just have really good stuff here. Like, I don't really need to travel, and it's really nice here because I can just pull my tent trailer somewhere and camp out and have a pretty plush glamping setup. You know, <laughs> and not have to spend thousands of dollars to go fly across the world. You know, yeah. What's uh What's one of the best places you've you've run here in the states? I mean, I love I love anything in Southwestern Colorado. That's probably one of my more favorite locations to kind of explore. I loved when I, I we lived in Bozeman, I like the, you know, the, all the mountains around Bozeman, the Bridgers are really kind of a special place. I don't know. I, I don't have any, like the, I have multiple favorites. I mean, I love the bear river range, you know, where the bear 100 is. I love that, that range. I lived in Logan for two years and got to explore Mount Naomi wilderness quite a bit. Um, so that's kind of a special place. And the Grand Canyon sticks out, obviously. Now that I'm in Flagstaff, I mean, we go to the Grand Canyon all the time because we can do day trips there. It's only an hour and hour and a half, you know, door to door. Yeah. So is there any I, just, uh, I was just in the canyon over the weekend. So it's you know, it's easy it's to, nice to have that in your bag. It's nice to have that. Yeah, in your you're bag. like, oh, I'm gonna go do a 21 miler in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and then I'm gonna drive home and be home by four and Put my feet up and watch a movie with my kids, you know, <laughs> not a bad, not a bad setup. No, it's not a bad gig. That's for sure. What is there, is there any, is there any trail here in the U S or, or anywhere in the world that, or race that you've, that you haven't had a chance to run on yet that you would, that it's kind of like top of your bucket list, so to speak. Well, I I'd like to, I, I would like to do something Scotland or somewhere in the UK Something, something up there. I don't know. I mean, I'm looking into it right now. I've got a athlete that lives in London. We've been chatting about races and my son who is um, getting ready to finish up some online college stuff here in August. He and I are talking about taking a trip there, kind of a, a boy's trip. He's, he's turns 21 in July. And so he and I've talked about a trip. I, I owed him one from COVID because he was a senior in high school and for, you know, senior year, basically senior year, freshman year of college time frame was COVID. So originally we'd always talked about like, we're going to take a trip for your high school graduation. Right. But then it was COVID and everything was shut down. <laughs> so we just postponed the trip and we've been still been chatting about where we're going to go and, and figuring out where it fits in his schedule now, because he's a little busier than he used to be. You know, that he's, you know, working full time and going to school online. And anyway, he finished up that program in August. So we're talking about going somewhere in the fall after I'm done with my hundreds. So I'm trying to find a race that I can like piggyback something. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I guess you're going to be out there. I mean, might as well. I mean, I guess that's one place I really want to go check out. You know, I've heard the, the Scottish landscape is just epic. My wife and I are actually looking at going out to that part of the world next year um, for vacation and stuff. And that was one of the things that we talked about is let's try and get to Scotland. I mean, I'd love to do some hikes out there and stuff, but I've heard, I've heard from other other individuals that the Scottish landscape is just so yeah. I can totally see why why you're you know wanting to go out there. Yeah, I wouldn't um, mind checking out. I wouldn't mind going back to Patagonia. 
like probably the Argentinian side. Like uh, I haven't been to Argentina, just Chile. And I wouldn't mind checking that side of that part of Patagonia out mm-hmm. too. I think that that's another bucket list for me personally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there's so many races I could probably like, as soon as we get off this call, I'll think of like five that I'd be like, Oh, that one's a great <laughs> one. There's so many. Like yeah, you're and then when I got in the sport, there was only 33, 100 milers in North America. That's crazy. You know, now there's over 200 well, and there's two hundreds, right? A bunch yeah. of two hundreds too. So it's like the, the sport has exploded. You know, I always thought, well, I'm going to, bu- I'm going to, bu- I always had a, 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 I always had, when I first got in the sport, you get on run 100s.com and there were 3,300s listed in North America. And I was like, I'm going to run all 33 of those. When I started getting into hundreds after I had three or four under my belt, yeah. I was like, I can do that in my lifetime, get 3,300s in. But then it just, the list kept getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and the next thing you know, they're like, it's like 200. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm not doing that bucket list anymore because there's too many. <laughs> well, well I, I would say that you could say that about the 200 list now, but now that list is growing every It's growing year, too. Everywhere. And it's it's crazy. I personally think eventually it's going to get to a point where you're going to see your your first 300 race as well yeah. at some point in time. You know, i I leave it to Jamil or Candace or somebody in that realm to come up with a 300 somewhere. And then all of a sudden now a new category is created. I mean, it's going to be different though, because at some point, I mean, the way I see it, like, especially for my back of the pack runners doing 200s pluses, it's really hard on the body. Oh, like to go that long without sleep. Yeah. You know, like I just, yeah, at some point you're putting people in pretty, in yeah. kind of a, a, a dangerous situation, the longer you push it out. I mean, I'm sure someone will do it, but, yeah. but I, one thing I see is like, and my wife has been around the sport forever and she is not an ultra runner, but she's been, she knows the sport and she, after seeing, you know, we live here in Flagstaff, so Cocodona finish line. And so we've been at every Cocodona so far. And one of the things we witnessed by me having athletes in the race every year, um, we see, you know, somebody who's been out for five nights yeah. and it, my wife looked at me and goes, I don't think this is good for you. And I was like, I don't think so either. You know, <laughs> when you see someone who hasn't slept really for five days, yeah. that's not a good, that person does not look great. They are pretty hammered and they are hammered for a while afterwards when you yeah. haven't slept five nights. So it's really hard on the back of the pack really hard because I mean, I only, you know, I'm, I'm running fast. So like, I'm only getting, I'm only missing two nights of sleep. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to recover a lot faster than the average person in the pack, just because I'm not getting as much sleep, but I'm not going into the well as much with sleep deprivation. It's only two nights, you know, with naps and and everyone else is going multiples. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I, I could, I could see how, like a 300, like if a 300 was to be around, it would almost have to be something where it's an invite only style deal. Like, like your back of the Packers definitely. Or you have, or you have a required 12 hour pause in the middle of the race, right? Somewhere where it's like, you can't, you have to, you have to sleep one full night during the middle or something. I mean, I think it's possible to go like that on very little sleep. I just don't think it's great for people. I think at some point it's going to catch up where someone's going to like die or something, man. I (laughs) I don't want to see it, but, but I just feel like somebody's going to like walk off a cliff or, you know, because you're so tired, 
there's yeah, so well, the much hallucinations start, the hallucinations start kicking in and all of a sudden the next thing you know you're walking on the trail falling off the side of it right and it's- well i mean i'll give you a good example in moab when i ran it last year a, a dude i know from nebraska really really he's in his late 50s really talented runner has done probably as many ultras as i have and or maybe more and long career super well known in the midwest and um he started hallucinating in at moab he hadn't slept he started hallucinating and he you know you have a spot tracker on and they they noticed his spot tracker was off course and he literally afterwards i chatted with him we sat down for a bit and chatted and he said like he'd never it, it was his first 200 and he had never experienced hallucinations like that he had hallucinated that some woman was screaming for help in the woods and he was going after towards her voice and following it and so he got way off course they sent a volunteer to go get him and basically they had to play with his hallucination and say he kept being he was freaking out about this woman that needed help that was yelling and they're like no we sent someone a volunteer to get her and they're taking care of her, even though she wasn't even exist. She didn't even exist. Yeah. Right. But he was convinced there was someone needed help. So they basically said, hey, you're going to go with me. We've sent people to get her. You need to come to this. And they took him to the next aid station in like a mandatory sleep or whatever for five hours or I don't remember. <laughs> and and he said he still was pretty loopy even after he napped. So, you know, he said it was real. And so that po- at that point, it started to sink in towards the end of the race. And when he got done, he said sometimes he would be talking to people on the trail and and after that experience and be like, is this really happening right now? Oh, man. So, <laughs> I, you know, it's just it's one of those situations that. I don't know, the body does some weird things when it's tired and it, you're yeah. getting into un, someone can make a really stupid decision. Well, now that we've talked about this, are you going to be doing more 200s? I already up? signed up for Coca Dona 250 next week. <laughs> there you go. So, yes. <laughs> Um, I am going to do, I mean, Cocodona is my backyard. Yeah. Um, I want, I really want to do that race. Um, and I don't know if I'll do any more after that, but I'm definitely, um, Cocodona is on my list. So, yeah. You have any other, uh, big projects coming up this year that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm doing Rocky mountain slam this year. So that kicks off in two weeks, um, or less than less than two weeks, a week from Friday, Bighorn 100, Hard Rock 100, Wasatch 100, Bear 100. Wow. And what's the separation between all of those? Uh, four weeks between Bighorn and Hard Rock. And then I think seven weeks to Wasatch and then three weeks to Bear. So it's, it's the Rocky Mountain Slam has been around kind of like the grand slam of ultra running yeah. has been around probably since the beginning of like 2000 99 2000 2001 somewhere in there um it was kind of um dreamt up by uh, a couple of runners in our community one of them being rock horton who was a friend of mine and so that's who i heard about it from the first time and i've had a couple friends do it over the years and back it used to be where you had to you had to do bear Cause it's the last race and you had to do hard rock and then you had could pick two of three of bighorn leadville wasatch but now it's so hard to get in hard rock that it kind of like fell by the wayside as far as a you know a potential project for people to do because it's yeah. so hard to get into hard rock so cody draper from who's the new race director at bear 100 and i used to run with him when i lived in logan he kind of came up and and kind of resurrected the the slam this year 
when he found out a couple of people were doing it, he kind of resurrected it and said, okay, the only rule is it's kind of, he's calling it Rocky Mountain Slam 2.0. It's, it's, you have to do Bear 100 because it's the last race, but then you get to choose from a bunch of, you, from all the races and you don't have to do hard rock because it's so hard to get into. You can do Uray. They added a couple of races in the Rockies. So there's a couple of other races on the list now to choose from and you have to just run four or you have to pick three and run Bear. So I'm doing kind of the old school one. Like it's one of the original list because I've always wanted to do that list. So is this doing something like this? Is this more geared towards somebody like yourself? Who's a little bit more of the faster racer versus somebody who's a back of the packer. Like you don't know every there's multiple people. Do, I is think there? there's three of us or four of us that have signed up to do it this year. It's uh, yeah. Everyone's done it over the years. Tons of people like just, but just for like to do it yeah. right. You know, it doesn't matter if you're racing it or just trying to finishing it. It just, it doesn't matter. It's a big, big summer. Just, just a little summer. <laughs> just, just a little bit of mileage in the summertime. <laughs> well, that project came about, um, I ran cold water 100 in January. And then I was talking about Cocodona and my wife didn't really want me to do Cocodona. So she's the one that, and she, I mean, we've been married 26 years and together 30 years and she knows me pretty well. She's known me since I was 21. So before I was an ultra runner. And, and so she knows how I tick and she just suggestive sell, did some suggestive selling um, because she, she basically took, took me like, you know, sometimes I could be a, a little bit of a hound dog on a scent. And I was like thinking about Cocodona and thinking about Cocodona and thinking about Cocodona. And she knew like, if she got me thinking about something else that I would just let that go for a year. And, um, <laughs> So I, she said, Hey, aren't you about your, you turned 52 in August, like how many hundred finishes you have? Like 46. This was in December. And she goes, we, when I was trying to figure out my season and I had to turn it into some sponsors of what I was going to do this year, what, what projects. And she said, um, why don't you try to get your age equal your age in hundred mile finishes? And then you can just stay ahead of the number. And I awesome. said, that's a cool idea. So I just have to do six 100s this year. And so that's, that's how the Rocky mountain slam came about because I was number two on the wait list at hard rock after yeah. the lottery. So I knew I had a good shot of getting in. And I was like, well, I'd won Wasatch. I've won bear and I've won Bighorn, And all three of those races have a policy. If you've won the race, you can bypass the lottery. They have a, you know, written policy. So I immediately reached out to all of those races and bypassed the lottery so I could get in those races. And then I signed up for Sedona Canyons 125 and then I did Coldwater already. So I've got two down, four to go and uh, of this year's wow. projects. Man. Well, I wish you the best on that. Thanks. <laughs> I've kept you long enough. I really appreciate you jumping on, sharing your story, sharing some conversation about uh, races you've done and, and, uh, this sport all, all together. So thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. The Trail Life Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Stoner. Music was provided by the Poor Dirty Astronauts with lyrics written by Matt Meyer. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this episode and the entire Trail Life Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and anywhere you find your favorite podcast episodes. Thank you again for listening in, and we'll see you on the trails real soon.